um, the past week or so of this. Uh, it came to my attention. I remember when Franklin Graham led a um, the prayer march in D.C. a few weeks back. This came up. He wanted to call all of our our nation to prayer and fasting today. And I, uh, I meant to bring this to our attention that as as the this all kind of incorporates part of our forty day prayer push that we are doing. Um, and if you're if you're following along with that, this this is part part of that as well. We're just praying for our country, praying for what's going to take place in a couple weeks with the election, uh, nine days from today. Uh, so get out there and vote. Express your uh, opinion in the matter. Uh, get your ballots out there. But we want to make sure that our country is led. And I told the confidence this can be led by the person that God puts in place. Doesn't matter if it's Trump or Biden. It's going to be led by the party and by the man that God is putting in power. And we can be confident in that. Even if it goes against who you're voting for, we can be confident that God's putting his person in power. He does that in the UK. He does it in Germany. He does it in South Korea. He does it in North Korea. He does it in Australia. The people in power right now are in power because God put them there. He has a plan for this world that he invites us to participate in. And it's exciting to know that what happens politically, I may express my, my desires, I may express my uh, passions, but ultimately God's plan is going to come to fruition. I can rest and be at ease in that. Even if it isn't my personal will or my personal desire, I know that God's always got his hand moving across our world. And his plan's going to come to fruition. So I can be at peace and not be stressed out about what's going to happen or who's going to be in power or who's going to control the White House, who's going to control the Congress, who's going to control the Supreme Court, who's going to control this, who's going to control that. God's in control. And we can rest in that. But I want to invite you with this in mind, if you didn't know about this, I invite you to the rest of today, as you leave here today, to join Regina and I and others around the country as we are fasting and praying for the future of our country. Fasting and praying for our leadership. Fasting and praying for our government. Fasting and praying for our church and the churches in our community. And leaders who are sick, leaders who are trying to figure this the whole pandemic thing out and trying to lead through it. Small churches and large churches alike. And so if, if you want to join us today and do that, I'm not going to force anybody. I'm not going to make you sign a, a petition in the back and say, put your name to it. But if you are willing to join us uh, for the rest of today, uh, do so. As you go home, uh, skip a meal. Um, and while you're skipping your meal, pray. Spend that time in prayer. Throughout the afternoon, as it comes to your mind, spend some time in prayer, praying for our country and for our, our leaders. As you, come, as you get ready for dinner tonight, and if you want to skip a meal then, pray for your leadership and pray for the upcoming elections. Pray for the health of our nation and the spiritual health. That God will draw all men to himself. That's really what it's about. That's what the gospel is about. God drawing mankind to himself. And we want to have a part in that as Grace Life Church. But this morning, we're back in Hebrews chapter 12 to today, as we've been talking about for the past many weeks, how 
Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the sacrifices, sacrificial system. Jesus is greater than all those who came before us. Jesus is just greater. And today, we're going to look in chapter 12. And I've kind of entitled this passage as we look at Jesus is greater than us. The, the title for the sermon today is Keep Your Pants On. We'll get to why it's titled that here in a second. Just keep your pants on. We'll get there. Last week, as we looked at chapter 11, you know, it's the great hall of faith, right? You talked about Abraham and Noah and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and all these great men and women of the faith and how they lived their lives by their faith. And they were everything about their lives was centered around their faith in Christ, faith in God and what he was going to do. And some, for some of them, life went well. And for some of them, the results were not maybe what they expected. And so today in chapter 12, the author here, he starts off with a key word. He says, therefore. And whenever you see therefore in scripture, you always want to look back and see what the therefore is there for. He's referring back to what we talked about last week, about these saints, about these believers, those who live their lives in such a great way that their faith exemplified every aspect of their lives. So follow with me here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, as we look at the importance of living our faith together here in this first section. He says there, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, remember going back to chapter 11, there's so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. <coughs> That's written to us. As we consider what it means to live life together, what it, as we consider what it means to live with all these saints who live before us, and not just the ones that we read about last week in chapter 11, we all know great men and women of the faith, and even like grandparents, aunts, and uncles, friends, co-workers, people who seem to live their lives at a different level of spirituality than where we're at. And we, as we live our lives together, we are drawn into this relationship with God. There's something different about them. Now, how many of you wear pants? Hopefully you all put your hands up. Some of you wear skirts. Okay, well, we'll say generic. How many of you wear pants or skirts? Or dresses, okay, everybody's got your hands. I'm glad you're all wearing something this morning. How often do you change your pants? Every day, every couple of days, maybe twice a day if you have a spill. If you get out in the backyard, you're playing in your garden, and you come in and all of a sudden your knees are green, and oh, I gotta change those now. What if you could only choose one pair of pants to wear? For the rest of your life and never take them off. 
You're going to wear them to bed. You're going to get up in the morning and they're still going to be on, hopefully. You're going to wear them throughout the whole day. You're going to wear them in your car. You're going to wear them to work. You're going to wear them as you come home at night. You're going to wear them as you go to bed at night. Next morning it starts all over again. We had a friend and when we were living in Virginia and he was a really into camouflage. He would have chosen to have a pair of camouflage pants for the rest of his life. I'm talking about you, Rodney. He would choose to wear camouflage shirt, camouflage pants, camouflage shoes, boots. He was just all into the camouflage back in the 80s. Some people like khakis. Some people like blue jeans. Some people like dress pants. Some people like the pants I used to wear back in the 80s, the, the, must, the weightlifters pants, right? Anybody, ever, anybody else sitting there ever wear those really cool parachute type pants back in the 80s? Was it just me? It was just me. Nobody else was cool like me, I guess. I thought it was cool anyway. My, my girlfriend thought it was cool. Don't ask her. She rolled her eyes at me a lot. Still does. What if you could only wear one pair of pants and they were attached to you with super glue, right? So they're not coming off. Think about your faith in that way. For many people, we treat our faith like our pants. Every day, I'm taking it off. When they get uncomfortable, I'm taking them off. When, I, when, they, when they get a little soiled and a little out of sorts, I'm going to take them off and put a new pair on. I'm going to change. And we treat our faith that way. I can wear my faith when I want to. I can not wear my faith when I want to. I can take them on, take it off, take it on, take it off. And yet there are others that we know about. We read about them last week in chapter 11 who seem to put on their faith and wear it their whole life and never take them off. They got the, I call it the everlasting super glue pants. They put them on and they stayed on. It doesn't matter if they gained weight, they, they, they naturally expand, right? Everybody's got their COVID-19 thing going on right now. We've all put on 19 pounds. Those pants expand with them, they contract with them. But those people that we know about, that we grew up with, or people that we read about, they seem to live in a different category of faith. And that's who the author is talking about here. And once they put the, their faith pants on, they never take them off. And the author says, they're a great cloud of witnesses. We live with them. We have their stories. You can read their biographies. <coughs> you can read in the scripture, but also other places. You can read articles that are written about them. I think of like Jim Elliott and his friends who got killed in Ecuador back in 1950-something. I look up to them and go, wow, I could never do that. And then God called us over to Asia. We went to North Korea and other people told us, wow, we could never do that, go to North Korea. We could never go to some of those countries. God called us back here and we're like, God, what are you doing? <laughs> you had us overseas for 20 years and now you're bringing us back here. I don't know that we can ever do that. He stretched our faith. He says, trust me, I will work in you to the ministry I've called you to do. And he does the same with each and every one of us. We may think we're inadequate. That's good. 
Because when we think we're inadequate to do something, it means God's going to step up and do a mighty thing through us. That's where our faith takes over. We stand there and go, God, I can't pastor a church. God, I don't know if we can work back in the U.S. again. God, I can't go to Ecuador and be willing to risk being killed. God, I can't go to North Korea and China. Those places are just a different government system there. God, they might kill us. They might arrest us. I'm inadequate to the task you've set before me. He says, that's right, you are. But through me, I will make you adequate. And through you, through me, we're going to see great, mighty things happen. See, as we work together as a church, as a church, the body of Christ working together, it's not just me as your pastor leading the ministry. We're incorporating everybody in the room this morning and everybody watching online, those who are a part of our body, working together to do great and mighty things. We're all wearing their pants. They may look different. They may be different colors. They may be different texture. But we're all working together, strengthening our faith, learning together to work out the ministry of Christ. But these men and women that we read about, they didn't exist in a bubble. They worked alongside others as well. That's the challenge here that the author sets before us. It says, you are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And they weren't isolated events in men and women's lives. They worked together, and God worked through them to accomplish great things. They, the Bible goes on, he says here in verse, verse 1, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What kind of race is that? When I was in High school, I was, in, I was in track, track and field. And I used to be really good at the 40-meter dash, the 100-meter dash. I could do the 200-meter run, the 400-meter run. I was okay at those. But when I got past 400 meters, which is just one time around the track, I was pretty much done. I tried running the 800-meter, which is half a mile. I, got, I was okay through the first time around. And then all of a sudden, People start passing me the second time around. I tried running the one mile one time. One time, yeah, I was done. <laughs> Last place, baby. I was not a good endurance runner. I would not be good at running away from zombies because they don't stop. Or running away from Pepe Le Pew. Ever seen the cartoons of Pepe Le Pew? He just keeps on going. That cat's running and running and running. He just keeps on boing, boing. Boink, and eventually he catches her, right? I'm okay in the short distance. But the endurance race was hard. When we were in Korea, Regina's younger brother ran the 3K or the 5K races in cross country. Man, he was just like a camel, just kept, kept right on going. He wouldn't stop. He just kept right on going. He became one of the top cross country uh track runners in, in our in, in there in South Korea for the foreign students. He could not be, he just plowed right on through. Must have massive lungs or something, I don't know. He could get right through, but that was not me. But the challenge here as believers is we are running in a race of endurance. We are running an endurance race. No matter when you become a believer, we're going to live our whole lives Drawing closer to Christ. You live your whole life learning more 
and more and more. You live your whole life strengthening your faith. You live your whole life learning to partner together with others. You live your whole life learning who God is. It's an endurance race. Think of that we're all on the same team. It's a team of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And we're all waiting there with a baton for our turn to run around. And you pass off the baton to the next person, and then it goes around again. And then eventually it comes back, the baton comes back to you, and you're off again. And then you pass the baton off to somebody else. And maybe you're passing the baton off to your kids. Maybe you're passing the baton off to somebody that you are discipling. Maybe you're passing that baton off to your grandkids. As you're bringing them along in faith. See, the, the race does not end until Jesus comes back. And we're all in that race together. It's like side by side. It's not like one person running. We're all side by side running the race. And the next generation comes, you pass that baton off. The next generation comes, you pass that baton off. The person you're discipling, you whip out another baton, you hand it to them. And you're all running together, encouraging each other. Hey, how are you doing this on this lap? I'm tired, but you can do it. Come on, keep it up. You can do it. I'm tired. I can't get You can do it. Come on. We can run the race together with endurance. We're all tired. You don't think these men and women of the faith back in chapter 11 got tired? You don't think that they struggled with their faith, that they struggled with sin, that they struggled with the challenges that were facing them? Of course they did. But they came alongside one another, and there were others that God brought alongside them and said, it's okay, you can do it. You can be strengthened. But when we let the weight of the world, as my sister, set aside all these weights and the burdens and the sins which burden us down, we let those things affect us, it slows us down in the journey. Sometimes it's desire for fame or wealth or entertainment or education or status. I call them, the, those are the frivolous things that merely operate within this temporal existence where we live. None of those things are things we're going to take to heaven. None of those things have an eternal consequence. How many books I write or how important I may be or I may or may not be a conference speaker in the future, it doesn't matter in light of eternity. How big my house is doesn't matter in light of eternity. Well, how nice a car I have or how nice a watch or phone or clothes I have does not matter in light of eternity. What matters is what I do with the job that God has given to me and with the people he's given me to run the race with. As we come alongside, he says, run the race with endurance until we see Jesus finish the race well. Some of us, some people are going to finish their race in 2020. Some people are going to finish their race in 2021. Some are going to finish their race in 2025 or 2030 or 2050, 2060 or 3000. Who knows when Jesus is going to come back? But until he comes back, we keep running the race and finish well. Finish well. We look to Jesus. We keep our eyes on him. Understand that he is the one, as the Bible says here, he is the one perfecting our faith through our daily struggles. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? He is the one perfecting our faith 
What does he say there? Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He struggled. He counted it a joy to go to the cross on our behalf. How many of us consider it a joy when we go through struggles in our lives? Has COVID been fun? Has the pandemic the past eight, nine months, has that been fun for anybody? I see no hands raised up. None of us would say, I'm so thankful we've gotten to go through this. But how many of us has looked at the past eight or nine months as an opportunity for us to grow and learn, become more like Christ? To look for opportunities to minister to those in our neighborhood around us. On the back table, there's a, 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 a piece of paper right there that's not cut apart. I've left it there so you guys can cut it apart. It basically says, so you can go to your neighbor and you fill out the information on there and say, I'm your neighbor, and I want, to be, don't, want you to know that I'm here for you during this time of pandemic. If you need supplies, if you need groceries, if you need a ride somewhere, whatever you need, I want to be here to help you. And then you take that piece of paper and you just put it in their mailbox. Or you put it in their front door. You're not soliciting. You're letting them know that during this time when everybody's fearful and everybody's afraid and everybody's kind of not knowing what's going on, that we want to be that calm, peaceful presence so that we can have an opportunity to share Christ with them at some point. That's what that paper's back there on the table for. Because Christ is using this time to perfect us. Christ is using your spouse and your kids to perfect you. Christ is using your friends and your professors and your co-workers to perfect you. Christ is using your neighbors and your family members, extended family members, to help perfect you. All these circumstances we go through in life, we see as struggles and we're like, I really wish I didn't have to go through that. Christ is using in our lives to perfect us, to make us more like him. Christian, little Christ. That's what we're called. Little Christ. And all of these things God is using in our lives to make us more like him. As we struggle together, as we work together, as we minister together, live our lives of faith together. The author goes on and talks about the journey, the journey that we're on, this faith journey that we're on. Look in verse 4. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's kind of a weird statement. So the struggle that you're on, has it caused you to be in pain? Have you died from it? Have you shed blood because of it? Learning to put off the sin in our lives strengthens our faith. It's a struggle for us every single day to learn to deny me, to deny self, and put on Christ. To deny my desires and my wishes and put on the desires of Christ. So your struggle against sin, have you not resisted to the point of shedding blood? You aren't bleeding. You're struggling, yes. We're all struggling, but you're not dying. It's kind of a funny statement to put there. So it's, it's, it's a, in this struggle, we learn to rejoice. It's not like we have to be bled to learn how to deny ourselves. 
Jesus has already bled for us. On the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus took our punishment on himself. All the bleeding that had to be done, he did for us. The author is saying, you don't have to go through that. Jesus already did it for us. He goes on in verse 5. He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Anybody here like to be disciplined? Kids, do you like to be disciplined by your parents? No hands are going up. Nobody likes to be disciplined. But when I discipline my kids, it's not out of anger. It's not out of frustration. I don't discipline them because I hate them. I discipline my kids because I love them. And I want them to become beautiful young women that love God. When I discipline my kids, I discipline them out of an attitude of love. The same thing goes for God for us. He says, I love you. You are my sons and my daughters. He's our Heavenly Father. He disciplines us because He loves us. Look at that verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. This discipline from God is an important part of our journey. We may despise it. We may not like it at the moment. But it's an important part of our journey as we are becoming disciples. That, 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 that prefix there, dis discipline and disciples, it has the same prefix in the word. It requires discipline. It requires a strengthening. It requires somebody coming up and saying, you're not living right. It lets us, when God disciplines, it lets us know that our super glue pants are still on. That we have not been removed from his family because he is disciplining us. That we are counted as part of his family. And in his faithfulness, he has secured us in his hand. It's his faithfulness that holds us. It's his love that secures us. It's his sacrifice on the cross that makes all that possible. Verse 7, the author goes on. He said, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We just talked about that a second ago. What son is there that a father does not discipline? We all desire our sons and our daughters to become better people, so we discipline them. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God is not disciplining you, if he is not letting you know, in other words, areas in your life where you failed, if he's not reminding you constantly of areas in your life that you are not living up to his standards, then you're an illegitimate son. You're not part of his family. God is good. You ever spent time away from God's word? Spent time away from God's word, and then that, that first time back, you're like, oh man. You're standing here, you come before God, and you're like, God, it's been a while. I know I, I should I know I should be here and, and, and reading your Bible, but I'm really way back here. Um, uh, God, it's me again. And there's a bit of shame. There's a bit of frustration. You want to kick yourself. Because we know we need to be in God's Word. We know we need to be spending time with God. And there's a, 
bit of us there that's like, oh, I don't want to face him because I know he's disappointed with me. And I don't want God to be disappointed with me. But then what happens? You open up God's word. And just like the father of the prodigal story, the prodigal son, he welcomes you right back in, right? The prodigal son, as he comes back, he said, I'm just going to go back to my dad. I'm going to become one of his servants. I've squandered all his money. I've been out in the, in the world, living life the way I want to. I'm not fit to be called his son. And as he comes down that road, what does the father do? He sees him from afar off and he bolts. He runs down the driveway. He grabs his son and he embraces him. He says, you are my son. We're going to go kill the fatted calf and rejoice because you have come home. That's the same way that God views us. When we spend time away from God's word, there's not this that we're expecting. He walks up and embraces. He says, welcome home. I know you've messed up. Welcome home. You're still my child. Yes, they're disciplined. Yes, you feel guilty. That's good. That's all part of that discipline scenario we got to go through. But you're my child. I want to embrace you and welcome you back home again. We know we are his when he brings us under his discipline. It's not something to fear. We should rejoice in it. Because that lets us know, I'm his. I'm his. Look down at verse 10 and 11. We'll start back at verse 9. It says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Look at this. So that we may share his holiness. So that we may share in his holiness, verse 10 says. For the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But look at this. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to all who have been trained by it. So what is the end goal of our Discipline, holiness, and righteousness. He is making us more like him. Right? He is making us more like him. When I discipline my kids, it's not because I despise them. I want them to develop good values and good morals in their life so they can become good, solid citizens of our country and learn to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why we discipline them. That's why we pray for them. Our desire is for them to become more Christ-like. I pray that God disciplines my kids. He's going to discipline them in much better ways than I ever would. My discipline's for a short time. I have 18 years with them, roughly. 19 years. If I'm lucky, 20 years, 22, 23 years. Roughly. Eventually, they're going to move off, become adults on their own, become financially independent, <coughs> right? Become financially independent at some point when they hit 50, maybe. They're going to start families of their own. And we'll trend the, this relationship, this father child relationship where I'm disciplining them, will shift at some point in that relationship where you move from this disciplinarian to a more of a counselor, 
and you come alongside and you help them to make wise decisions, but you let them make their own decisions. You let them make mistakes. I'm sure they're to support them and help them go through that. That's what God does with us. When you're a brand new believer, it's a lot of rules, regulations, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. Here's your bedtime, right? Why is it eight o'clock the bedtime? Because it is. Because mom and I need some peace and quiet. <laughs> Later on, you let you, the, the, you start expanding their rules and you start letting them help set the, some of those rules and God does much of the same with us. At the beginning of life, it's rules, regulations, rules, regulations, do this, don't do that. Later on, as you learn to be led by the Spirit, and you learn the principles in God's Word, and you begin making wise decisions yourself in your faith, because you don't have that, you don't feel that big pressure on you, the big hand pressing on you. The end goal is holiness and righteousness. Looking like Christ. I love in verse 12, the, the author goes on, he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. He says, so instead of walking around, man, I'm being disciplined, he says, lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your legs. Stand tall, knowing that you are a child of God, and he is disciplining you for your benefit. Don't look around like, man, I got grounded again. Stand up, you know, tall, saying, God is disciplining me. He's making me more like himself. I can rejoice in that. Find strength and healing in the presence of God. So we find the importance of the Faith, living faith together, importance of the journey and struggling to struggling to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Lastly, we find the importance here of living holy lives. Living holy lives. Verse 14. The author tells us to pursue peace and holiness. He says, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a nice high bar. That's a high standard. But you know that we will not see God unless we are holy. Perfect. Did you know that? Thankfully, it's not my holiness that I'm trusting in, but Jesus' holiness in he's given to me, his perfection that I've accepted and received. I've given him my inadequacies. I've given him my sinfulness. He took it upon himself, and he gave me his perfection. He gave me his holiness. But in this life, I'm striving to become more like Christ. I'm striving to become the kind of man that God wants me to be. The author says here, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. How hard is that? Hard. We have neighbors. We have, we grew up differently. We have co-workers that we just don't get along with sometimes. There's sometimes maybe family members we don't get along with. But God is telling us through the author here, strive for peace with everyone. If it is up to us, if it's within our power and our strength, live at peace with everyone around you. Be at peace. That means let things slide off. Things that are not that important, let them just slide off your back. 
live at peace. Learn to understand that people, we're all at different levels in our spiritual walk, our spiritual journey. Not everyone is going to have the same passions even for life that I have. There are people who are Raiders fans. You don't understand them, but they're there. All the Broncos fans understand that. Those of us who come from different states are like, I root for the Bengals, I root for whoever. There's a real animosity when you go to the to the football game. Uh, and those Raiders fans are there decked out. They got to watch out. And then when you go now to Las Vegas and the people dress up in Broncos outfits, they got to be careful with the Raiders fans. It's tough. But that's not the attitude we ought to have. When we look at those around us, if it's at all possible, live at peace within one another. He goes on and says, and watch one another's backs. Look at verse 15. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled, and so that no one is sexually immoral. He says, watch one another's backs. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it as we are ministering together, as we are growing together in this journey, as we come together on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights in Bible study, as we come together throughout the week and we call one another, text one another, whatever. See to it that we as the body of Christ are encouraging one another. That no one falls into this, he calls the root of bitterness, which goes back to what we just talked about, striving to be at peace with everyone. But you don't get into moral trouble, becoming defiled, fall into sexual sin. I don't think it's an accident that the author mentions these two sins very openly, bitterness and sexual morality. Those two sins seem to grasp people's minds. And it's not just a 2021, 2020, 2021 issue. This goes back 2,000 years. People were dealing with those sins 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. Those sins were still there, evident and present. Satan has been using them for thousands of years to draw people away from God. So we need to come alongside those who are struggling with bitterness toward another person. Encourage them. Pray for them. Put our arm around them. Come alongside those who are struggling with sexual sins in their lives. Pray for them. Encourage them. Challenge them. Don't let those sins draw people away from him. From God. And then he says, we need to make sure we are avoiding Esau's trouble. Avoiding the trouble of Esau. Look at verse 16, second half. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You ever wonder why that was such a big deal? Jacob and Esau, Esau was the first one out of the womb, and so therefore he was the oldest son. He was given the birthright. He was given the, the, the opportunity as the oldest son to 
inherit the double blessing from his dad, and yet he comes out from the field, I'm going to die. Oh, and his, his younger brother Jacob says, well, if you give me your birthright, let us trade places so that I receive the double blessing from our father. I'll give you this meal. You can have this piece of soup, this meat. He says, like, whatever, whatever, just give it to me. I'll give you my birthright. I don't care. At this point, I'm, I'm probably going to die anyway, so it's not going to be worth anything to me. Just give me the soup. You ever wonder why that was such a big deal? Essentially, the bigger issue here is that by giving up his birthright, he became irrelevant. He became irrelevant in the plans of his father. He became irrelevant in the plans of God. As the oldest son, he would have been the one to take over his father's possession. He would have been the one to control the family's inheritance. He would have been the one to push the family forward and to seek the blessings. But because he gave it up, he became irrelevant. He treated his birthright like so many, listen to this, he treated his birthright like so many of us treat our faith. He changed his pants. He took them off. Uh, I don't just here, you can have these. He treated his birthright like we treat our faith. He was willing to cast it aside for those frivolous things that are merely of temporal existence, right? Fame, food, entertainment, status, the scraps of the earth. What do we cast aside our faith for? What do we as God's children cast aside our faith for? See, it was a sign of Esau's unfaithfulness to God that he said, just give me the soup. You can have my birthright. I don't care about it. Instead, we need to choose a lifestyle that makes us relevant to the kingdom of God. Think about this. We want to be relevant. We want to be used by God in his kingdom. We need to make sure that our faith is strengthened so that we are becoming relevant in his kingdom. Training up our family. Regular worship. Learning, spending time in God's word so that we might know him. Seeking to glorify him in all things in our lives, right? Coming together as the body to watch over one another, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another. A couple weeks ago, Joel was here and he read this verse. He said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25, it says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised it is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 2,000 years ago, it was the habit of the, some of the Christians in the church back then to just kind of take the worship time flippantly. I can take it or leave it. I can go or not go. I don't need it. I don't need it. Even 2,000 years ago, here they're, they're within just a, few, a couple decades of the resurrected Christ, and it had already become an issue for them. How much harder is it for our generation? For those around us who are centuries removed, millennium removed from the resurrection of Christ. They still had firsthand witnesses present 
Let him know, no, I saw the risen Christ. We have the written accounts that they saw the risen Christ. If it was a struggle back then, it's going to be a struggle for us. We need to make sure that we are coming together as the body of Christ to watch over one another and helping each other to be strengthened in the various Christian disciplines. That's why we meet together for Bible study on Sunday nights. That's why the ladies meet together for Bible study on Mondays. That's why we encourage you guys to have a regular prayer Bible reading time. We want us to come together and be strengthened in God's Word. Think about the churches in Revelation. What was it they were commended for? The seven churches of Revelation. As you read through those in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you see that the church of Ephesus was commended by God for their patient endurance of the truth and their faithfulness. You see that the church of Smyrna was commended by God, by God for faithfully enduring the slander that was cast upon them and for the tribulation they endured. The church of Pergamum for not denying their faith in the face of evil. The church of Thyatira, for pursuing good works of love and faith and service and patient endurance in their, in their community. The church of Philadelphia, for good works and the little strength they had, but they remained faithful. The sad thing about those churches is you have the church at Sardis and the church of Laodicea. Not one good thing was said about those churches. They had totally become consumed by their culture. They treated their faith flippantly. They treated it like just a pair of pants I take off when I get home from working outside. Let us not be like that. Let's make sure that we are staying relevant to the cause of Christ, that we are seeking the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. All of our other desires will come to, come to pass, the Bible says. His desires will become my desires. And we'll see great things happen. You bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute as our team comes up to lead us in our final song this morning. Let me ask you, where are you on the scale of relevant and irrelevance? Maybe you look at your life this morning and you say, Pastor, I'm much like those, I'm a lot like Esau. I traded my birthright. I traded my faith for that which is not really important. I've sought my own desires rather than your desires. And just by simple raising your hand, you'd say, Pastor, pray for me. I need to make sure my life is more relevant, that my faith is relevant, and I want to seek the kingdom of God this week. Just slip up your hands so I can pray for you this morning. I want to be more relevant in my life this morning. Thank you. I want my life to matter. I want to be part of what your plan is for the future of this town, the future of this church. Lord God, this morning as we sit here, you've seen the hands and decisions that are made as we seek to be more relevant in your kingdom to not treat our faith flippantly like we would just a pair of pants. We want to live our faith out each and every day in such a way, Lord God, that you are glorified and you are honored with us and through us. 
I pray, Lord God, this morning that you would give us great opportunities this week to live out our faith in a new and different way. You would give us opportunities this week. It's going to be hard. We're going to be tired. We need to run with endurance the race that you have set before us. <coughs> I thank you, Lord God, for all that you have done for us, the sacrifice you made. Come and live in us. Make yourself evident through our lives every single day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one final.